What we're about to read in Nehemiah chapter 11 is one of the most striking and oddly kind of funny chapters in the Bible. The entire story of Ezra and Nehemiah up until this point has been centered around the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And now that all of that is complete, there's just one problem. Just one problem. Nobody wants to live in Jerusalem. Nobody wants to live there. <laughs> They've rebuilt the whole city. They've got this brand spanking new wall. The temple's back up. And nobody wants to live there. <laughs> nobody. It's pretty crazy. I mean, what good is a new wall and a new temple if there are no people? That's a problem, right? But why is this? Like, why is this the case that nobody wants to live there? Well, for one, Jerusalem at this point is a shell of its former self. It's a shell of its former self. Uh, it has been decimated by war. Wars, uh, actually, plural. Uh, wars over the years. Now, secondly, Israel has a ton of enemies still. They've got a ton of enemies at this point. And if those enemies are going to attack Israel, guess where they're going to strike first? Jerusalem. Therefore, this is a dangerous place to live. All the enemies of Israel are going to attack your city if you live there. Okay? And thirdly, if you lived in Jerusalem, that meant that you would not have any land. You would not have any land. And land was extremely important. Extremely important in these days. So, how do the Jewish leaders deal with this problem? That nobody wants to live in this city that they've rebuilt. Well, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of, uh, to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Okay, so the Israelite leaders decided to live in Jerusalem themselves, which is pretty cool leadership, right? That's servant leadership. The leaders decided to live in Jerusalem, which is great. And the rest of the people cast lots to see who would have to move into the city. Now, this is not something we typically do today in church. We don't flip a coin to see who's going overseas to do mission work. But this was a pretty common practice back then, this casting of lots. Okay? Uh, and it's important to note here that this is not a game of chance. That is not how Israel looked at this, the casting of lots. It's not a game of chance. For Israel, this is a tangible expression of the sovereignty of God. Okay? They fully believed that God was in control over the way the lots fell. Okay? So they're not playing chance. They are actually relying on the sovereignty of God to decide who lives in the city. And we see here in verse 2 that there were some sacrificial people who actually volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Some, some sacrificial folks decided that they would volunteer. And living in Jerusalem was such a difficult thing. It was such a hard thing that the people commended all those who volunteered. Did you notice that? They commended everyone who volunteered. Bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. Bless you. Bless you for volunteering. 
Now, notice what is said about the people who went. Now, depending on your translation, verse 6 says, if you look at verse 6, it says uh, that the 468 descendants of Perez who went to Jerusalem were, quote, valiant men. Valiant men. If you look at verse 8, verse 8 mentions 928 more men of valor. Men of valor. If you look, if you look at verse 14, there were 128 more quote, mighty men of valor. So three times these groups of men were called valiant. Why? Because going to Jerusalem meant going to suffer. That's what it meant. Going to Jerusalem meant going to suffer. Now, what's also real interesting about chapter 11 here in Nehemiah is the emphasis on worship. So we kind of have these two concepts. We have, we have this concept of suffering, but then we also have this concept of worship that is really central to this chapter and the next chapter, Nehemiah 12. And if you look at verses 15 and 17 in chapter 11, you'll see that much is made here of who is leading worship in Israel. Who is leading worship? And you might even notice a familiar name in verse 17. Verse 17. Anybody happen to recognize that name? The name you might recognize is Asaph. Asaph. Why do I say you might recognize him? Well, Asaph wrote 12 of the Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 of our Psalms in the Bible. And so here we have the son of Asaph carrying on the family legacy and leading God's people in worship. And we see the same emphasis on worship in Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, there's just a ton of names here, and this is why I'm skipping around here. Uh, a ton of just names listed in chapters 10, 11, and 12, so we're not going to just sit here and read all these names that I can't pronounce. Uh, but verses 1 through 26, a ton of names here, and those verses reference all three waves of Jewish exiles returning from Babylonian exile. So all three waves are mentioned here in verses 1 through 26. And what's important to note here is that all three waves made music and sang in their return to Israel. All three made music and sang in worship to their God as they returned. In fact, singing is mentioned eight times in chapter 12. Eight times. Now, God's people have always been a singing people. From the very beginning, they've been singing people. Uh, most other religions in the world don't even have singing. Singing's not even a part of it. If there is some kind of sim singing, mostly it's like mind-numbing chanting is all we have. But God's people sing. They sing. In fact, some of the greatest lyrics and greatest melodies ever written were written by believers to their God. And so Israel gathers here in chapter 12 to sing. But these aren't just random songs. They're singing. Let's look at verse 24 of chapter 12. Verse 24 of chapter 12. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, and their associates, who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. One section responding to the other 
as prescribed by David, the man of God. So, they aren't just worshiping. They're worshiping according to King David. Did you catch that? According to King David. According to the Bible. That's how they're worshiping. Folks, you can't just worship any old way you want. You know that? You can't just throw a band on the stage and call it worship. Doesn't common sense kind of tell us that God gets to dictate how he wants to be worshipped? And do you know that he does that? He does that for everything? He actually wrote it down for us. God's dictates on worship are written down. And Israel at this point had long ago forgotten that. But here, they are rededicating themselves. Not only to the worship of their God, but to the way in which that God wants to be worshipped. And that's kind of just common sense, isn't it? So they're returning to the book. Now, a lot of what passes for worship today in the modern church, in my opinion, is anything but. Well, well, it is worship, I'll say that, but it's not worship of God. It seems to be worship of self. It's worship of self. Um, It is incredibly entertainment-driven. And the lyrics often remind me of an opera singer warming up. Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. It's my opera voice. <laughs> the songs are all about me. My feelings and my wants and my desires and my pain and my trials. And very little talk about Christ and his glory. Christ might be a supporting character in the songs. Oh, but he's not the main character. The main character is me. Is me. His songs make it seem as if Christ lives to serve me. Instead of me living to serve Christ. This is not worship. It's idolatry. It's worship of the self. But here in Nehemiah, Israel has repented. They used to be the same way. They only cared about themselves too. And they have repented and they now have decided to return to the book. They've decided to return to the Bible. To worship exactly how God desires. Now, Israel has a lot to sing about. Like we just said, the city's rebuilt. The city is virtually rebuilt. We've got the wall that's rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. There's a lot to celebrate, right? There's a lot to make music and sing about. Even those who are moving into the city of Jerusalem to suffer, even they have reason to sing. Their gracious God has brought them back home from 70 harsh years in Babylonian exile. Now, their home may not be what it used to be, but home is home, baby, right? God has brought them home. So even those living in Jerusalem to suffer have reason to sing. They're back in the land. They have a temple, they have a wall, and they have a gracious God who's made it all possible. And so they assemble the bands. They assemble the choirs. 
There's a lot to celebrate. This is Israel's version of Woodstock. This is going to be pretty wild. <laughs> Let's look at it. I mean, this is pretty crazy as we'll read through this. This is pretty wild. Let's look at verses 27 through 29 to start with. 27 through 29. Verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the, I don't know how to say that, from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Okay, so they had to go get all the musicians because when King David instituted the worship in Israel, uh, he had 24 different groups of ministers and priests, and basically they were on a two-week rotation, a two-week rotation. So the musicians had regular jobs, okay? They had regular jobs. They worked out in the fields, uh, out in the villages, and they would just come to Jerusalem when it was their turn in the rotation, okay? But now Nehemiah is like, bring them all in, baby. Bring them all in. This is going to be one heck of a celebration. So now all the musicians in Israel are coming to Jerusalem to form one giant band, okay? Now, it's important to note here, kind of a side note, but I think it's important to see that there's careful planning and order going on here, okay? Careful planning going on. This isn't just thrown together. It's not willy-nilly. It's not spontaneous. God's word is consulted. They go back to Scripture, and then a specific plan is put together, okay? That's not an accident. That's not an accident. Now, the next step Israel takes here is to purify themselves. That's part of this plan, too, okay? They want to purify themselves. Look at verse 30. Chapter 12, verse 30 says, When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And the wall. Uh, God does not let defiled sinners come into his presence to worship, Okay? Uh, and so what that means is that Israel had to purify themselves through ritual cleansing and through the offering of blood sacrifices. And this was in order to make the people ready for worship. You could not just approach God in worship. You had to become clean. You had to become holy. And so they had all these ritual cleansings, and then they offered the sacrifices, the blood of these animals, to purify themselves. Okay? Now, the next verses show the actual worship, and it is stunning. Like, this is pretty crazy. Let's look at it. Verses 31 through 40. Verses 31 through 40. Verse 31. <clears throat> I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Machai, the son of Zechur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milalai, Galilai, Maiah, 
Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad, the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of Hundred, as far as the sheep gate, at the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials. What a scene this is. This is incredible. So, all the musicians and two huge choirs gather together on one side of the wall of Jerusalem. And then they begin fanning out, okay? They walked in opposite directions around the wall until they met on the other end of the city. At which point the entire city was encircled by musicians and singers. The whole city. How crazy is that? The entire city was encircled with musicians and two giant choirs. Let's look at verse 30, or verse 43. I love this verse. Verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of, of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. <laughs> this is incredible, isn't it? Imagine thousands of musicians and singers. And if you, if you remember earlier, they said they were kind of singing, they were echoing one another. So there would be thousands of people sing one stanza, and then more thousands would sing back to them. I mean, what a scene this is. What an incredible scene. And what joy. It says the joy of Israel could be heard from far, far away. And I love the beginning of verse 43. It says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. God had given them great joy joy. What a God we have. That when we have no joy, God gives us joy. God grants us joy when we have none. Now, if you weren't here last week, Israel signed a covenant promising to take care of all the workers in the temple, in the temple of God. They sign their names to it. And in verses 44 through 47, you see them joyfully making good on that pledge. They are thrilled to do so. Let's look at it. Verses 44 through 47. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, 
first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God in the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So, the people are happy to worship and happy to pay those who lead them in worship. They're thrilled. Why? Because joy is at the root of our faith. Joy is at the root of our faith. When God's people gather, as we are gathered here this evening, it is in a spirit of gladness. It is in a spirit of of celebration. Now, that is not to say there is not a time for lament and a time for grieving. There certainly is. But we do not grieve as the world does. We do not grieve without hope. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we cry. Yes, we lament. But there is hope there is hope in our grieving. There is joy even in our tears. And so still, joy is at the root of our faith, even in sadness. So, yes, Israel certainly had a lot of reasons to celebrate their God. They had a ton of them. But I would argue with you this evening that you and I have far more reasons to celebrate our God. Let me explain. Did you know that purification is still required to enter into God's presence in worship? You still must be clean. You still must be holy. God still does not allow sin in his presence. He does not. But, unlike the ancient Israelites, you and I are not made pure by ritual ceremonies or by the blood of animals. You and I are made pure by the blood of the Lamb by the blood of God's Son. And so you and me, we can approach God's throne with full confidence. We can sing with all our hearts and we can raise up clean and pure, holy hands to our God. Not because we are clean, not because we are holy, but because Jesus Christ and his blood has made us clean 
and made us holy by faith and faith alone. Faith alone in the blood of the Lamb washes us white as snow. White as snow. Now, some skeptics claim the crucifixion was cosmic child abuse. Cosmic child abuse. The father abusing the son. <clears throat> Far from it. Far from it. No. You see, the crucifixion was an act, a deliberate act of worship. A deliberate act of worship. Why do I say that? Well, on the cross, Jesus famously cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But have you ever noticed in your Bible that those words have quotation marks around them? There's quotation marks around that sentence. You see, these aren't Jesus' words. Jesus is quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22. That's a verse 1 of Psalm 22. Now, it's really important to understand that the chapters and verses in the Bible were not added until centuries later. And so at this time in the first century, if you wanted to reference a Bible passage, what you would do is you would quote the first line of that passage. You would quote the first sentence to let everyone around you know which passage you were referencing. I have more homework for you. Well, you guys said that you really liked homework. I want you to go home and read Psalm 22. Read the whole psalm. You see, if you read the whole psalm, you will see that it is a song of worship, a song of hope, a song of joy, a song of total trust in God. Total trust. And so what is Jesus doing at the most horrifying moment of his life? He's worshiping. He's worshiping. He's praying a song of trust aloud to his father. No, this was not child abuse. The father's great desire was to reconcile sinful people like you and like me to himself. That was his great desire. And so Jesus willingly, voluntarily offered up his life as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate offer of worship to his Father. As the hymn writer beautifully stated, when death came to call on that lonely hill, you gave yourself to the Father's will. 
your final words, your dying aim to glorify your Father's name. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a Savior you are. And we know that the only reason we can come together and worship is because of your true worship of your Father. With your birth, your life, your death, and your resurrection. What a Savior. And so, Lord, we honor you. But not just tonight, Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. We want every moment of our lives to be worshipped, to glorify you in your Father's name, to bring you praise and honor. It's what you deserve for who you are. But Lord, we need your spirit to do that. And so we're asking you tonight to give us your spirit so that we might worship you and and bring you praise in all things, even in our failures. We just want to give you, Lord, what you deserve. Because you got what we deserve in our place on the cross. What a Savior. What a sacrifice. What a friend. what a pleasure it is to serve you and to praise you and to worship you.